TLS 1.3 has been widely praised as a major upgrade to the transport layer security protocol responsible for securing the majority of web traffic. But one area in which TLS 1.3 seems to be lacking is its potential for resistance to attacks that utilize quantum computing. Computers that, theoretically, could factor the products of large primes and solve the discrete logarithm problem in relatively short periods of time, significantly affecting the security of TLS 1.3 and other protocols. Today, however, we're discussing an interesting new paper to be published at this year's ACMCCS, which introduces ChemTLS, a modified version of TLS 1.3 that uses key encapsulation mechanisms, or CHEMs, instead of signatures for server authentication, thereby providing a sort of post-quantum TLS. But what even are chems? Are quantum computers even a thing that we should be worried about? On this first ever episode of Cryptography FM, we'll be hosting Dr. Douglas Tabila and PhD candidate Tom Wiggers to discuss these questions and more. Dr. Douglas Tabila is an associate professor of cryptography in the Department of Combinatorics and Optimization at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. His research focuses on improving the security of key exchange protocols and internet cryptography protocols such as TLS and SSH, including the development of quantum resistant solutions. His previous work on the integration of elliptic curve cryptography in TLS has been deployed on hundreds of millions of web browsers and servers worldwide. We're also joined by Tom Wiggers, a PhD candidate at the Institute of Computing and Information Sciences at Radboud University in the Netherlands. He is working on the interactions of post-quantum cryptography with protocols under the supervision of Dr. Peter Schwabe, who is also a co-author on the research work that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, hello. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Nadim. Nice to be here. Awesome. Uh, so uh, this is a really interesting topic. You know, a lot of people, I assume most people have heard about, or at least most people watching this, have heard about TLS. And a lot of people have also heard about post-quantum crypto. And I guess the first question here would be, why post-quantum crypto? Why post-quantum anything? What's the big deal? Well, with the advent of, or the, the coming advent of quantum computers, we're going to have to be transitioning uh, much of the cryptographic infrastructure to to deal with that. And TLS being, you know, probably the world's most widely used cryptographic protocol, it's the first natural uh, first natural candidate for replacement. So that's why a lot of the effort has started off with TLS to make sure that we can at least transition it and. Uh, get it ready since the transition will take quite a long time. But what's what's the point of this transition? Uh, you know, what's the danger that we're facing if we don't adopt post-quantum crypto? So the danger is that we will come to a state where there are quantum computers able to decrypt communication and we don't have replacements for, uh, for the algorithms that are being used. So we just would, would lose the ability to communicate securely. But are quantum computers really a big deal? Is this something to be worried about? Do you see them being a reality in the next five years, 10 years? Uh, yeah, the, the, that's the million-dollar question, I think, how long that will take. Um, there's certainly a lot of money being poured into this space. So uh, a lot of people are very, very intent on making it happen sometime in the future. But... Um, 
even uh, even if it would still take 50 years, that's no way you can tell that right now. And if it's here in 10 years, uh, you can think about adversaries that are currently recording things, uh, adversaries with, with big pockets. Uh, everyone then usually knows wh which are the ones that I'm talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And then they might, uh, in 10 years, when they have that, that quantum computer decrypt uh, everything that they've obtained, and as such, it's already important to start um, this move towards cryptography that is resistant to uh, quantum attacks. It's actually interesting because if you have a quantum computer that's able to effectively attack RSA or Diffie-Hellman as they're used today, you're, you basically have the equivalent of a weapon of mass destruction because you would be able to attack bank security, military security. There would be no digital communication that's out there on the internet. You know, you'd have to basically... Um, uh, gap everything off, uh, air gap everything, right? Is it, or, or is that an exaggeration? The banks, for example, uh, to pick one very slowly adopting uh, field, um, to, to, to pick that example, it's probably a good idea to get ahead of things and, uh, and, and write these papers now rather than, than 10 years in the future. Uh, then we can also have a good look at everything. Uh, we'll probably get to that our uh, protocol has some nitty-gritty things that uh, will probably make the standardization process, if that happens, last a little bit longer than how long they did over TLS 1.3, which was, I think, six years or something. Um, and that was largely uncontroversial, I think. Uh, well, if the goal was to get banks to update their infrastructure, you're probably yeah. 10 years too late already. Really? Yeah, I don't think my bank uses TLS 1.3 yet because they like to man in the middle their own things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't want to be caught in a scenario where we're unprepared, right? That that a quantum computer shows up and and we haven't at least started this process because it takes so long to transition. If we're gonna, if if the world is going to invest the money in transitioning this cryptographic infrastructure, let's do our best to make sure we're actually transitioning the way we want to and not uh, in, in, a, in an unexpected way. That's a really good point. I, I find that to be convincing. Um, okay, you've sold me on the necessity of uh, post-quantum um, protocols. So what's really interesting is that, as far as I know, uh, signatures accomplish something that's fundamentally different, right, from, from key encapsulation mechanisms. Uh, but before we go into that, uh, you've managed to replace signatures with key encapsulation mechanisms. What are key encapsulation mechanisms? So a key encapsulation mechanism is kind of a generalization of Diffie-Hellman key exchange. So it lets two parties use just public communication to establish a shared secret, uh, which is exactly what Diffie-Hellman does. Chems just generalize that and let you use different mathematical primitives. There's maybe a small subtle difference in terms of the ordering of messages. So you can't do a non-interactive key exchange with Chems like you can with Diffie-Hellman. But otherwise, we can just think of it as a generalization of Diffie-Hellman key exchange. So I'm using chems, I'm uh, establishing shared secrets, right? It's a key exchange mechanism. But when I'm using signatures, I am signing stuff, right? And that's really different. So is it really the case that in ChemTLS, are you just replacing signatures with chems directly, or is there something more involved yeah. going on? How is it that you've managed to make TLS post-quantum uh, in this uh, intriguing way where you replace a primitive with a primitive that works in a completely different way and does something completely unrelated? Well, then you need to go back to what you're actually uh, proving with that signature. Um, 
you uh, authentication in TLS uh, fundamentally works by that you have this certificate which is, has some nice signature under it from a certificate authority saying yeah Nadim is really Nadim uh, and he operates this website. Uh, what you are proving with that signature that is in the handshake is that you have the private key that corresponds to the public key in that certificate. So what we're uh, really doing is um, replacing the, the signature in the TLS handshake by a proof that you have the CHEM public key uh, that is contained in your uh, server certificate. So instead of uh, a signature, we um, do a key exchange and then we make the server proof that he uh, can derive the shared secret and that proves that he has the private key that corresponds to the public key. Um, so only an authentic server, uh, not an someone who is pretending to be uh, the server and just sending over the public key but doesn't have the private key, that uh, an imposter could not derive that key and just cannot prove that they uh, have the same key. So that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but at the same time, when you were looking at replacing signatures, or rather, when you were looking at making the entire protocol post-quantum, you probably studied a lot of options and uh, determined that you know this particular replacing this particular primitive signatures with this particular primitive key encapsulation mechanisms uh, would be the best thing you can do when you're um, balancing all of the priorities that you had to take into account. So if we look at the paper, we see that you had to deal with the size of payloads, performance, um, the number of messages, and so many things at so many different stages of TLS, including the handshake, session resumption, and the actual uh, payload exchange. Could you talk more about that? How is it that your current decision was superior in terms of just performance uh, when uh, TLS 1.3? Because, you know, as you know, TLS 1.3 is going to be used, you know, millions and billions and trillions of times a day. So performance is really important. Yeah, so you definitely could make a post-quantum TLS 1.3 with post-quantum signature schemes. And there have been uh, several experiments demonstrating how to do this. Uh, the, the problem that arises is for all of the post-quantum primitives, both signatures and chems, they have larger communication sizes than our traditional uh, RSA and elliptic curve algorithms. But even given that, the signature schemes tend to have larger communication sizes than the chems. So by switching to chems for authentication, we were hoping to be able to reduce the amount of communication that had to be sent. Uh, that's the, the main thing we were trying to accomplish uh, in, in this work. Yeah, and that there's something uh, that you should probably also uh, not forget is that we are not fully getting rid of the signatures here because the certificate chain um, is still authenticated via uh, signatures because it's hard to do an interactive, I have this key proof with a certificate authority. Um, but at the end, uh, you can you do this interactiveness and then... Um, you can put a chem in place of a signature and then both save a few bytes, uh, quite a few in some, some scenarios. Uh, and uh, as a bonus, uh, chems tend to be a little bit faster than uh, producing a uh, 
post-quantum signature. So that is also a nice benefit. One of the things that's, um, that's really been a given uh, that we just took for granted with pre-quantum crypto, so Diffie-Hellman and RSA, is that everything was quite small, quite fast. And uh, post-quantumly, that unfortunately does not really hold in general anymore. There's some schemes that are really fast, but then they have some slightly larger keys, some schemes strike this middle ground. Uh, but in general, I think you can say that post-quantum uh, signatures are slower and bigger than, than chem ciphertexts. So you mentioned that there is still one signature uh, primitive that's being employed for the certificate chain. And I'm wondering, does that actually affect uh, the level of post-quantum security that you guys ultimately get? Well, to achieve post-quantum security of the whole protocol, you would need post-quantum algorithms everywhere. So you'd have to use an appropriate post-quantum signature scheme even in those authentication paths. Um, if we think about how deployment of TLS will probably go, that will probably be the last part to transition to post-quantum because it takes a long time to get root certificate authorities to change their algorithms and have those keys uh, widely deployed in, in operating system and browser trust stores. Um, but fortunately, that's probably the part we need to transition last because if we're worried about retroactive attacks by future quantum computers, you know, those retroactive attacks can retroactively break confidentiality, but you can't go back in time and break authentication. Right. Uh, it's really forward secrecy that you're trying to um, uh, guarantee here more than any other property. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so we are trying to achieve uh, post-quantum forward secrecy and, and post-quantum uh, authentication. Uh, so there are several flavors of forward secrecy, depending on when things can be compromised by the adversary and whether the adversary has to be passive. But the main, the main goal here is that if an adversary later compromises a long-term key of the communicating parties, they can't recompute the shared secret. And this is usually done by having an ephemeral key exchange incorporated into the session key establishment. So uh, overall, in terms of performance, are there scenarios where actually, you know, and, you know, maybe this is asking for too much given how much extra security you're getting, but can you sometimes beat TLS 1.3? Are there places where, you know, you're either completely equal or maybe even faster than TLS 1.3? Yeah, the uh, chems, uh, there are some chems that are uh, actually faster even to compute uh, than uh, RSA and Diffie-Hellman. Uh, Lattice-based schemes in particular are really, really fast. And if your network is uh, fast enough, uh, then you can, uh, the, you're more or less bottlenecked by um, the uh, computation size because sending over 100 bytes or, or 10 bytes is not a big difference. Uh, it gets washed off by the overhead anyway, yeah. you know, other application layer stuff or protocol layer stuff. Exactly. So um, then uh, assuming sufficiently fast uh, implementations, uh, you are usually uh, as fast as uh, normal uh, signed uh, TLS. 
uh, in ChemTLS uh, if you pick the right algorithms. Uh, you could be faster, but then you're more or less uh, starting to get into the game where you have a non-optimized implementation of RSA versus uh, optimized op uh, or yeah, Kyber. Kyber, for example, is quite fast, uh, even in the reference code implementation, faster than a reference code version of, of uh, at DSA. But yeah, usually you will have uh, similar things. Yeah. I mean, modern elliptic curve algorithms are, are so fast that from a user's, from a client's perspective, they don't notice much latency impact from public key algorithms. And the goal with post-quantum and, and the fast lattice algorithms that Tom talked about uh, is to, to keep that, that clients don't experience latency impacts. Where we might see a little bit of improvement is server-side throughput. So if, uh, if some of the lattice algorithms are cheaper for servers to run than the existing elliptic curve and RSA algorithms, then they'll see a benefit in terms of reducing the computational resources they need to have to host their, their services. Yeah. The, in, in general, the, the you measure this, uh, this time until you can start speaking your application layer stuff to the server. Uh, that latency is more or less dominated by the round-trip time uh, most of the time but it that's one of the things that we were really careful about with with chemtls um in uh, one of the big innovations in tls 1.3 is that they reduced the number of times you need to go back into the server uh to uh, allow you to establish a shared key with the server and have the server authenticate itself uh, in a single round trip so um the client sends over their stuff, the server says, hello, I am the server, and this is my signature, and then you can talk to the server. And then the client can send its request. And in ChemTLS, we were also very careful uh, to allow, uh, and we that's actually the major innovation, I think, in ChemTLS, is that we uh, also allowed you to establish a key with the server um, that only the server can read the data that you're sending to it um, after this first round trip. So. Um, some so would you say in general that um, ChemTLS has actually simplified the payloads and the messages uh, that could constitute part of the handshake, or is that an exaggeration? That's probably a little bit of an exaggeration. I would say we haven't made it any more complex. We're able to use the same messages that exist now um, and basically get the same uh, flow of information. Um, but I wouldn't say we've made it any simpler. But so why didn't TLS 1.3 just start off with chems and start off with all of this uh, or start off with post-quantum? So, so I guess they didn't start off with post-quantum signatures because they were, I guess, too slow. But, you know, you managed to find out that doing things with chems uh, gets rid of that. So it's just that they didn't think about it. Maybe they didn't have post-quantum resistance high on their list. Or I guess maybe this paper just innovates in a way that wasn't obvious at the time when TLS 1.3 was standardized. So they didn't uh, start off TLS 1.3 by thinking about post-quantum. So they weren't specifically looking at chems. But actually, the seed of TLS 1.3 was a, a proposal by uh, Hugo Krachak and Hotek Wee called OPTLS, which did focus on using Diffie-Hellman key exchange for authentication, similar to the implicitly authenticated key exchange we're doing here. But they ended up not adopting that. Um, 
And I think one of the main reasons is it would have required a change in the types of keys that were certified by certificate authorities. They'd have to change from issuing certificates for signing keys to issuing certificates for uh, Diffie-Hellman key exchange keys. And they, that's a big change, and they wanted to reduce the amount of changes needed to adopt TLS 1.3. Looking forward to post-quantum, there's going to have to be changes anyways to what certificate authorities do. So we wanted with ChemTLS to explore all our options rather than just assuming that signatures were the default. Okay, but have you had an opportunity to get ChemTLS adopted in the industry? You know, ha Have people picked up on this? Well, we published the, the paper on ePrint, and uh, we got uh, on ePrint, so the ICR ePrint uh, servers, and we got actually quite a bit of feedback on it, um, which was uh, super great when you have that, when you just dump something on, on ePrint that you've just submitted to the, a bunch of reviewers. Um, and uh, one of the things that came out of that is that... Uh, there is some early stages uh, work going on uh, with Cloudflare uh, that we are hope to be able to uh, elaborate on on near the start of uh, 2021 at Real World Crypto, um, where we are gonna try to um, run ChemTLS uh, experiments in their backend systems to have uh, Cloudflare servers talk to each other and then see how that behaves at a bit of a larger scale than we have been doing because all, we have done experiments but they've all been um, virtual uh, for sake of reproduction etc um, but so some real world you're data you're talking nice. about you're talking about internal cloudflare stuff yeah uh, but for, for this to be useful for clients i guess you would need to have a major update to the tls spec and that would need to be rolled out to all browsers um, or is, is there any way at all to avoid that? No, that's definitely necessary. So to make, to make this work in, in the large scale, we'd need browser updates. We'd also need certificate authorities to start issuing these new types of, of keys and, and also come up with even a way of managing the certificate lifecycle. How do you handle requests for uh, revocations from uh, chem keys, which, which can't be used to sign a revocation request? Or, or even a, how do you demonstrate possession of the key at the time you're requesting the certificate? So there's certainly lots of deployment issues that need to be thought through. Okay. That's still, it's still good to actually have all this uh, tested and ready so that in the case that there you know, is some sort of breakthrough in that research, you have a way to sort of like just immediately get orders going and get people to uh, flip to a uh, post-quantum TLS 1.3. But aside from TLS, so it's funny because I think Douglas mentioned earlier that uh, you don't even feel the cost of um, um, elliptic curve cryptography primitives. And that's very true, for example, when you're using uh, Signal or WhatsApp or any other secure messenger, because you're actually doing uh, scalar multiplication on curve 25519 with every single message. And you barely think about that. It doesn't even uh, slow down the sending of the message. It takes only a bunch of milliseconds. Um, and speaking of Signal, speaking of WhatsApp, is there uh, any future direction that you guys are envisioning for having this sort of um, research direction um, being implemented in secure messaging protocols, uh, maybe the noise protocol framework? Is there anything else that you've looked into and you think could benefit from this sort of work? 
I've been thinking about these questions a little bit. They're great questions. Uh, signals signals really interesting, uh, and it's it's great that we have it. Um, the technicalities of Signal, um, in particular, make it a little bit challenging to do post quantum with. Um, one of the things we haven't been able to accomplish with post quantum chems yet is non interactive key exchange. Uh, Seaside is about the only post quantum algorithm that can do non interactive key exchange or, or static static key exchange. And the current structure of the Signal X3DH handshake does have a static static component. So that's been a barrier for, for my attempts at least. Um, maybe, maybe some clever folks will come up with a way around that or, or some solution. Um, but uh, that's, there's, some lots of, there's lots of good questions there to, to try to solve. I think that's also one of the big challenges in the transition to post-quantum crypto is uh, that most of the old protocols that just do key exchange and then a signature, you can probably either just swap in post-quantum stuff or uh, do some things like we're doing here with ChemTLS fairly straightforwardly. But there's a few modern protocols that use this static-static Diffie-Hellman um, where you do really need to do something else. Uh, and swapping in Seaside uh, technically works, but Seaside is really slow. Mm. So th uh, that is a at least one of the downsides of Seaside uh, and its very early stages in terms of its life cycle as a as a as an algorithm as well i think we've just been too lucky for 40 years i mean diffie hellman is just too awesome and you can drop it into so many places and uh we just don't have the flexibility in the post-quantum replacements yet hmm. okay so you've mentioned the non-interactive use case as something that's definitely future work and also applying uh this sort of uh, style of protocol uh, post-quantum improvements potentially on other protocols uh, does that define largely the totality of your future work or is there any other future research direction for post-quantum protocols or chem applications to protocols that you guys really want to look into as well very I mean, directly if that's, if, if that's it that's it you know <laughs> very immediately we have the work with cloudflare of course that is going on um, and we also have some variants of, of ChemTLS that we still need to prove and put in a paper and then get out there. Uh, one of the things mentioned as an afterthought at, in one of the appendices is client authentication, but that's probably also something that you want to have down the line so that you can have clients authenticating themselves to the server instead of just the server authenticating itself to the client. Not very useful for web browsing, perhaps, but... Um, think of uh, APIs that use this or server-to-server uh, -server communication where you want both parties to be mutually authenticated, then you need this to happen as well. Um, you could also do things if you have, um, if you allow one of the parties to have a chem public key uh, beforehand, before you start communicating, for example, because they've cached something or maybe you put them in DNS uh, or, or, I don't know, uh, some alternative distribution method, uh, Internet of Things devices might have these keys in the firmware, then you could also do more efficient handshakes. And that's also one of the things with ChemTLS that we're looking at uh, at this moment. 
Well, the noise protocol framework has a lot of um, scenarios where that is exactly what you just described as is the case. You know, there's a pre-communicated public key, um, and uh, I guess. Uh, but you know, don't get me wrong. The stuff that's already on your plate with uh, non-interactivity and other protocols and working with Cloudflare—that's pretty much all you could ask for, right? You know, it's it's exactly what you would want out of a publication like this. I would assume. Yeah, it's very nice. And to get back to the noise thing, I do have a colleague of mine that is uh, has just start, started looking at that uh, exactly. So I hope to that she'll come Perfect. up with something amazing uh, down the line. Uh, awesome. But yeah, I don't want to steal her 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 work. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have her for another interview on Cryptography FM. Uh, I'm very excited. This is this is a great first episode. Um, I, I really am very grateful that you were able to come on and, and clarify these things uh, for myself as well as for the viewers, obviously, or listeners, I guess. Um, so before we sign off, I asked you guys before the podcast to uh, reference uh, some interesting papers that you've read recently. And I was thinking this would be a good way to conclude the the um the podcast so douglas would you like to go ahead and talk about um you know give our uh listeners uh an idea of any interesting work that you've um recently read and that you think would be interesting to share i've been sitting in on an interdisciplinary course here at the university of waterloo that uh, some of my colleagues are running on surveillance and privacy so bringing together both like computer science privacy type people but also sociologists looking at societal aspects of privacy. Um, and so there have been a lot of interesting papers that I'd, I'd never seen before. Um, one of them was called uh, Big Other, Surveillance Capitalism and the Prospects of an Information Civilization by Shoshana, Shoshana Zuboff. Um, this is actually the paper that in introduced the term surveillance capitalism uh, in 2015. Uh, so it's really interesting to look back and see what she predicted and see the extent that that type of business model has has grown since 2015. Um, depressing, but interesting reading. That sounds pretty interesting, and I'll make sure to link it in the podcast description. Um, Tom, would you have anything to share with our readers as well? Yeah, I am terrible at this. Uh, I There's hundreds of papers being posted on ePrint, uh, each, each month or something and i have it i'm terrible at keeping up but on my reading list is um you're not the only one this this is a bane on all yeah. of, uh, the, the, the fomo is real i, for, I, for I, I hope peter forgets to listen to this um on my reading list still though is a um uh craig costello wrote a tutorial to uh, or an introduction to isogeny uh, super singular isogeny key exchange um for beginners is the title. So I wonder what his definition of, of beginner is, because, but I have this illusion that one day I will understand how SRGNE-based crypto will work. And uh, I, I hope that that paper will get me closer to it. Okay, super singular isogeny key exchange for beginners by Craig Costello. I'll also make sure to link that in the podcast description. Uh, I also wanna share something. So I recently read this great paper called Clone Detection and Secure Messaging, Improving Post-Compromise Security in Practice. And it's a paper by um, four researchers at the CISPA Helmholtz Center for Information Security. Uh, Cass Kramer, who's published a lot of papers on formal verification and secure messaging. Benjamin Kiesel, Jaden Fairoz, and Aurora Naska. 
and it's a really cool paper because what they did was that they got a bunch of Android uh, VMs turning and they loaded up all these secure messengers like Signal, WhatsApp, um, Telegram, uh, Facebook secure chat, Skype PC, Viber, Wire, Wicker, Olvid, Threema. And they basically tested what would happen in the event that someone cloned a phone. So, you know, you leave your phone in a hotel, someone makes a copy of it, which is, I guess, possible on Android phones. You can just, you know, hack the bootloader or something. And would that mean that the copy would still be able to get future messages with that? Or would the protocol actually obtain the post-compromise security and forward secrecy guarantees that it advertises? And as it turns out, you know, the results are kind of unsurprising in a sense because Signal and WhatsApp actually do accomplish, uh, I think, the vast majority of their... Nope. S Signal is the only one, incredibly. I'm um, just looking at the results now again. WhatsApp even uh, fails in a certain bunch of cases. Facebook secret chat fails in a whole ton of cases. And, and I mean, unless... Aside from Signal and WhatsApp and largely Signal, you get this like enormous amount of not satisfying um, security guarantees. And it's really interesting because, um, you know, Signal, to be fair, uh, tends to drop messages more across devices than WhatsApp. You know, like it's more common that you'll get the need to reset a session or something. But when you read this paper, you'll realize that maybe that's because, you know, f for a good reason, because they're the only ones who are able to like... Um, adhere to this really strict key scheduling. I didn't mean to talk so much about this, but I thought, you know, this was a really cool paper. I'll also link it below. Uh, okay, so um, thank you so much, uh, Tom Wiggers and Douglas Tabila. You guys wrote a really cool work, really good paper, also with uh, co-author Peter Schwabe, who unfortunately uh, was not able to join us today. And uh, I'm really happy that uh, this paper was uh, published at ACMCCS. I'll make sure to link to the ePrint version below and is also getting picked up by Cloudflare and, you know, lots of other future work in the horizon. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Just to thank you, Nadim, for organizing this. It's great to have this uh, new, new venue in the community to talk about uh, the interesting stuff that's going on in cryptography. So I look forward to uh, listening to future podcasts. Awesome. If you are listening to Cryptography FM and you have cool cryptography work that you want to talk to the world about, uh, come have a conversation. That's what this is for. You know, it's better than a blog post. Well, in, in, in a conversational sense, you know, uh, if you read uh, the Matthew Green blog, for example, you'll still find an entire host of excellent blog posts. Um, but what I want to do here is have this weekly podcast with news and a featured interview covering the latest developments in theoretical and applied cryptography, whether it's a new innovative paper on lattice-based cryptography or a novel attack on a secure messaging protocol. We'll get the people behind it on Cryptography FM. 